You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's uh, jump right in. And here's what we're going to do, right? We only read um, chapter 7, verse 1, but in order to get us there, we need to really go back and do a, a, a little bit more work. And so I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning, which would probably be most appropriate, but we're just going to go to chapter 6, verse 14. So it should just be a paragraph or two up for you in your Bible there, and that is where we are going to start. Because, because that verse 1 in chapter 7 starts with since, we have to know what he's referencing, right? So verse 14 says this, and we're going to read from 14 through about half of verse 16. It says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that's where we're going to stop. And here's... Here's essentially what Paul is making the case for, right? Paul is making the case for the reality or the the truth that the people of God should be like God. So as God is holy, so should the people of God be holy. And what he's going to do, or he's going to make the case for using some some very readily um, accessible metaphors, is show us how holiness and unholiness cannot live together. They're they're mutually exclusive realities, right? And so we'll just walk very briefly through them, right? Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, here's the thing. Again, if we strip away if we stripped away the Bible, if we stripped away the, the, the Christian context of this gathering here this morning, if this was happening in a lecture hall at the University of Houston, I think most of us in this room could assent to the truth that righteousness, rightness before the law, and lawlessness, so acting not in accordance to the law, can actually not coincide, Right? in that you cannot be simultaneously upright before the law and at the same time lawless, right? So what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Again, if we were to take this outside of the context of the Bible, go to the science lab now at the University of Houston, this would probably be a truth that we could all assent to unless there's some new discovery that I have not read about, right? And that nobody has yet accomplished making a space where both light and dark exist together. What accord has Christ with Belial, which just a confusing word for Satan, right? What accord has Christ with Satan? And again, maybe we aren't familiar with with the Bible or the accounts of Jesus' life, but we actually see a period in Jesus' life of 40 days where he is led out to the desert by Satan. He he hangs out with him for 40 days. That's probably not the appropriate verbiage to use. It wasn't like as chummy as that sounds. Um, but, But right, he is offered accord after accord or agreement after agreement from Satan, right? He offers him the world 
for what? For his servants. All right? And what we see at the conclusion of those 40 days is that Christ has no accord with Satan. He does not, he does not make an agreement at that time. They are utterly and completely distinct and separate from one another. And there's this one. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And I, I, I want to read this very carefully so that we understand what this is saying. Because I think what we might be tempted to do is to say, oh, okay, so, so really, like, we can't have fellowship with people who do not think or believe like us. And that's not what, what Paul is getting at here, Right? There's one specific word that I would pick out, and that's, it's that word portion. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And what, what Paul is saying here, and it's the assertion of the whole Bible, so it's not, it's not anything novel or new, but what he is saying is that when Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him, Paul is saying that's actually true. And so unless you believe in Jesus, your portion is going to be very different from those who believe in Jesus. In that there is a consequence, that there is a reality that is true for those who believe and those who do not believe, and they are not the same. So all dogs might go to heaven, but all humans don't go to heaven. And I didn't actually just say that. That was a joke, right? You get that? Okay. All right. Awesome. I do not know if your pet will be in heaven. Um, cool. Sorry. Totally aside. Next one. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And this is where I want to sit just for, just for a brief moment. Because what it's going to do it is, one, it's going to utterly link us to chapter 7, verse 1, but it also links us to the, to, to the scripture that we read last week in Isaiah chapter 6. And so if you'll allow me to just, to just do a little, little work here, um, I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 6. And this is what Isaiah chapter 6 says, right? This is um, Isaiah, um, and he says, In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Right? So here we see this reference to the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. Here we see this reference to the temple in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. And Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And here's just like all of these other uh, examples. The answer to that is none, but how do we, how do we arrive there, right? So if we go back to this, this story from Isaiah chapter 6, or this vision that Isaiah has of the Lord seated on his throne with the train of his robe filling the temple, here's what we need to know. And again, I'm, I'm trying to keep this very brief, right? But the, the, the temple of God, not only in Isaiah's vision, but all throughout the Old Testament, the temple of God is the place where God dwells. That is where his presence is, right? So so when Isaiah has a vision of God, it's not God was out over here or out over there. No, he, he had a vision of God and God was in the temple. That was the location that God dwelled. So when Paul says or asks the question, the rhetorical question that, that has an obvious answer, what, what agreement do idols have? 
in this place where God dwells, God resides. We can take great clues as to not only the answer to that question, but the reality and the severity of that reality in Isaiah chapter 6. Because, you know, last week we, we talked about how when Isaiah comes into the presence of God, it's not, it's not a very flippant experience, right? And that he's not just kind of like, oh, God's there, sweet, you know, going to text my friends. But that, but that there's a, a, a visceral, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental reaction from Isaiah, and he, he says, woe is me, or woe to me, for I am lost, which really, you could better translate that as destroyed. Woe to me, I am destroyed, or I am cut off, for I am a man of unclean lips. You see, the reason that that is Isaiah's response, that, that fearful and, and, and that, that sense of impending destruction response from Isaiah is precisely because, is precisely because Paul makes mention of it in 2 Corinthians, that idols have no agreement with the temple of God. And what what Isaiah comes to see very clearly when he enters into God's presence is that he has brought idols into the temple of God and that there is no place for them. And so he will experience a cutting off, a destruction, a removal, a lostness. Woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. So what does this have to do with our holiness now, right? And that you sort of have an Old Testament reality, this thing that, that maybe, depending on what we think about the Bible, we don't even think is re- relevant in any way, shape, or form anymore, right? And yet we have to reconcile that with the fact that Paul is making significant reference to that and trying to help us understand that there actually is great meaning there. Right? But I think probably for most of us, the question in the room is this. What, what does this have to do with us now? Aren't we no longer under the law, but under, under grace? What is, I mean, God is holy. You still haven't helped me to understand why it is that we should be holy. Well, here's what uh, we continue reading, right? So we'll take that latter half of verse 16, and we will go through now verse 18. It says this. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So what we can clearly see in Isaiah chapter 6 and what we can see in the rhetorical question and answer from Paul in the verse prior is that God will not have someone or something else be worshipped in his temple, right? That's That's the source of Isaiah's fear. 
God will not have someone or something else be worshipped in his temple. But, here's this. If God wouldn't allow someone or something else to be worshipped in the Old Testament physical, literal temple, it stands to reason that he will also not allow someone or something else to be worshipped in his New Testament dwelling place, which is where? For we, get that, we, so he, Paul's not saying we like the apostles. He's not saying we like just me and my crew. He's saying we, as in we, those of us who have Christ in common, those of us who belong to God through the work of Jesus that has been applied to us by the Spirit, that we are the temple of the living God. The place where God dwells is now the people, the church. So if God wouldn't allow someone or something else to be worshipped in his Old Testament temple, he will also not allow someone or something else to be worshipped in his church. So we see that in verse 16. And in these, these two paragraphs, these kind of uh, collection of phrases, is actually a compilation of six Old Testament quotes. And I don't have time to, to go through each and every one of them, but, but you should take the time to do it yourself. But in doing this, here's what Paul is doing. In using six Old Testament quotes, Old Testament references to make his point, Paul is making it clear that the church at Corinth, this collection of believers, this body of people who have called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, are experiencing the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. He is linking his apostolic ministry to the prophetic ministry that we read in Isaiah. So what we're seeing here is, one, the beautiful cohesiveness of the Bible itself, but also the wonderful consistency with which God treats his people. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But I want to zoom in on, on that one word. When it says in the latter half of verse 16, for we are the temple. Our, our English translation actually fails us just a little bit. And here's why. Because, because the word that is used in, in the original language is actually a, a, a word that describes not just the temple generally as sort of the the structure and, and for its significance, but it actually references a particular location inside the temple. And, and again, we don't have time to walk through sort of each, uh, each different nuance, but suffice it to say that um, there were different areas of the temple that in order to, uh, to essentially enter into, you had to achieve or accomplish certain cleansing rituals. And the location that this word for we are the temple of the living God references is actually the most sacred place, known as the most holy place in the temple. It was part of the temple that, that no one could enter apart from one person, and he was only allowed to enter it once a year, the high priest. It was covered with a veil so that, so that you wouldn't essentially... Uh, look upon it and, and perish. 
So here's what, here's what Paul is saying in using that word. Paul is now saying that the people of God, right? So the church at Corinth, all the other churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, and all the people of God scattered throughout history, including you and I, are the most holy place of God. And what makes that significant is this. What they would do with the high priest during that one time per year that he was allowed to enter that most holy place is they would, they would tie a rope around his leg in case he entered into that space with any uncleanliness, any sin that had that, that had not yet been dealt with. Because what would happen is, is entering that place with sin would, would cause him to perish. And so they would pull his body out so that nobody else went in after him. So this most holy place in the Old Testament temple was a place where sin neither could nor should enter. And by using that language, this is what Paul is saying about the church, the people of God. We are the most holy place of God, the place where God himself dwells. And in that place, no, no sin can or should enter. And then he gives us three commands that we also find in Isaiah 52. He tells us to go out, to be separate, and to touch no unclean thing. And he says that when those things happen, he says, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So hopefully what we've sensed, at least at this point, um, is, is one, that, that, that God is entirely holy and two, that, that God suffers no unholiness in his dwelling place. And if his dwelling place is the church, the people, then that, that means something pretty significant for us. And so maybe, maybe, just maybe right now, you look at your life and you think to yourself probably the same thing that Isaiah thought. Woe to me. Woe to us, right? I mean... I think we can be pretty honest and say that that probably encapsulates all of us in this room. Woe to us. We are men and women of unclean lips. Woe to us, for we are lost. We are destroyed in the absence of an intervention. Isaiah's need in chapter 6 is our same need now. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, here's the thing. What we may have noticed at this point is that um, this gets a little complicated, right? Maybe it even seems a little bit incongruous. Because when he's quoting the Old Testament, right, he says, go out from their midst, be separate from them, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. 
So do this, and then this is what will happen. I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, and you will be as sons and daughters to me. But here Paul is saying, because we have these promises, so he's referencing those promises of God, I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, you shall be as sons and daughters to me. And he's saying, since we have those promises, so when and how did that happen? How did it go from do these things, then you will receive this, to now we have these things, so now go do those things? Does that make sense? How did that happen? You see, I think what we are witnessing here um, is, is a, a universal experience culturally. What I mean by that is it's something that, that all peoples in all places experience because worldviews demand this. And then it's second, it's the most maybe the most unique thing about being a follower of Jesus. And it's something that honestly has been utterly confused in the American church for quite some time. What I'll say is this, and, and, and again, so I don't know everything, but I think that I can safely say this, right? I am not currently aware of any other belief system in the world that does not operate according to these principles of, if you do this, then this will be the result. Take Buddhism. If you are ascetic enough, if you dis deny yourself enough, you will eventually escape the reincarnation cycle and you will arrive in nirvana. Secular humanism, right? Same thing. If you believe this particular thing about morality, if you believe this particular thing about human sexuality, you will be found on the right side of history. But first, you have to do this, and then this is what will take place. And yet what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is that following Jesus is the opposite because in Jesus, these promises are ours. That's what Paul is saying. Since we have these promises, since these promises belong to us, and so our morality eschews from a promise that has already been given. So here's, here's what's taking place here. Isaiah, in chapter 6, apart from the intervention of someone else, had no hope. He says, woe to me, for I am lost, I am destroyed. He had no chance of cleansing or purifying himself. He didn't say, hey, wait, God, can you hang on one second? I'm going to go clean this stuff up. I'll be back, right? He doesn't say that. If you could just give me X amount of time, I will ensure that I have done these things appropriately, properly, and, and long enough so that you are pleased, O Lord. Now, nah, he, he just says, it's, it's over. I've got, I've got no hope. And yet what we see shortly thereafter is that um, a, a seraphim, this angelic creature, comes and touches his lips with this, this burning coal. And these are the words of, of the seraphim. Seraphim says this, your guilt is taken away. 
your sin is atoned for. You see, in, in the gospel of Jesus, in the person and the work of Jesus, the Spirit of God, under the command of the Father God, applies the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to us, and subsequently, God as one proclaims over us, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. You see, that's the miraculous transaction. In that what Paul puts before us in verses 14 through 18 is utterly impossible for us to do unless. Unless. Unless all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You see, if you just go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and maybe we should have started here, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says this, All the promises of God find their yes in Him that Him being Jesus, meaning, meaning that when Paul says, since we have these promises, what he's saying is that because of Jesus, God will welcome us, God will be Father to us, and we will be sons and daughters of Him. But it doesn't end there, right? It says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So what Paul says is that in response to these promises, we should cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. And let's just zoom in on that word defilement because it is, it is entirely linked. It is entirely linked to this image, this visual, this this theological root of the temple of God. You see, the word defile was a, a word in the original language that, that connoted or spoke of a temple into which idols to other gods had been brought inside the temple of God. And so when Paul says that we should cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, what he is saying is that it is time, brothers and sisters, to make the temple of God, meaning you and I, together, our place, the dwelling place of God in us, it is time to make that a place in which no one but God is worshipped. Why? Because we have these promises. Because He will welcome us in Christ. Because He will be a father to us in Christ. Because we will be sons and daughters as Christ is His Son. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So here's my hope this morning, right? What we didn't do is go to... 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the first half of that, right, verses 1 through 13, where Paul gives us sort of a laundry list of what unholiness looks like. My goal this morning is not to point out specific things or areas in your life that need to be conformed to Jesus, but my hope is, my hope is this morning that we would have a compelling reason for stepping into the journey of becoming more, more holy. 
And the, the reason for it is really not as scary as we always thought it was, is it? Right? We always saw piety, holiness as something for, for sort of upper echelon people, whatever you want to call it. Our pastors need to be holy or our priests need to be holy, you know, whatever. Like that's for them and then they sort of mediate that to us. And yet what, what God is saying is that we together are the temple, the place that God resides, and, and we need to make it a place suitable for God. And so my hope is this, is that we, as Sojourn Montrose in our neighborhood parishes and, and as a family together in Christ, that we would labor towards this cleansing with, with those promises in mind that God welcomes us, that God is a father to us, that we will be sons and daughters to him, and that that promise finds its yes in Jesus, that that becomes a reality because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So here's the thing. Unlike these other worldviews where you must labor in order to find yourself in their good graces, in, in following Jesus, we understand that Jesus labored so that we could find ourselves in his good graces. And that now our morality, our striving is done from a place of freedom rather than bondage because we're no longer laboring for something we don't have. We're laboring from a confidence that we do have. And so we can both freely admit when we are unholy and we can strive with great energy to be holy, understanding that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So my hope, my hope is that we would become over time more and more like Jesus, more and more holy as he is holy, more and more distinct and set apart as he is distinct and set apart. But my prayer is that we would do that being stricken, not, not just by what's here, but, but also by what's not here. And I, I'm just going to point out one last thing and we're done. You'll notice in that verse 18, it says this, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's astounding in and of itself, right? Astounding in and of itself. But here's the thing. What I can't begin yet to understand is that there is, there is no qualifier there. There is no modifying statement. It doesn't say you will be as sons and daughters. It doesn't say you will be like them. It just says you will be them. So, so God is not speaking metaphorically to us in that you will be like my children. He's saying you will be my children. And that takes on a whole new meaning um, if, if you have a child. You see, <laughs> I enjoy Olivia. Olivia is my daughter. I enjoy Olivia because she's my daughter. She literally does nothing for me. <laughs> nothing. She, like, she, she's still figuring out opposable thumbs, you know? Like, she does nothing for me. But she has my love because she is who she is. She's my daughter. And here's the thing. Because of what Jesus has done for us, God, times billions and billions, looks at us in that exact same way. 
and that he, he loves us because we are who we are, not because we do what we do. But it's in the confidence of that great love that now we can do what we do, right? And that I hope, I hope that because Olivia senses that I cherish her and care for her and desire her well-being and in all things will battle for her good, that she will be willing to understand that when I ask her to do things like don't touch the stove, that it's for her good. In the same way, God is calling us to holiness because he knows that it's not just for his glory, but that it's for the good of his people. And so let's labor together towards holiness for the glory of God and for the good of the people of God, the place in which the very presence of God dwells. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning again. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as the people of God, united underneath the banner of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I I pray that you would make this church holy as you are holy, that Sojourn Montrose would be a place, Father, where the, the idols that would detract worship or steal worship from you, Lord, would be idols that we that we regularly and, and strenuously remove. And Father, that it would be done with, with wonderful confidence, wonderful gratitude in the fact that our acceptance does not come from there. That our acceptance comes from the person and work of the man, Jesus Christ, who succumbed to no idol, who succumbed to no sin, who had right standing, the the ability to enter into your presence unscathed and was consumed as the coal is consumed by the fire and has been applied to our hearts, applied to our lips so that we could be found blameless, atoned for, guilt gone, striving ceased. Lord, would that vision of your sacrificial work for us in your son Jesus be compelling to guide us towards living as you would have us to live, towards offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and accepting to you, or acceptable to you. And Lord, may we be transformed according to your word rather than conformed to the ways of this world. We pray that all these things would be a reality, and we trust, Lord, that in and through the power of your spirit, it will be so. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.